Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Oh, how I love today's guest. Levi Ajayi Jones is a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and podcast host whose work combines comedy, justice, and as she says, professional troublemaking. I was so excited to have my soul sister friend on the show. This has been a long time coming. We spoke about how we actually met, which was through Oprah, yes, Queen Oprah's Super Soul 100. So of course we bonded over our mutual Oprah obsession. And we talked about many of the adventures we've been able to go on since, including traveling around the country, speaking to incredible audiences of women on the Together Tour. We also went backwards talking about Lovey's move to Chicago from Nigeria at nine, the changes that she made so she could feel like she fit in, when she finally embraced her inner activist, and the importance of her writing. And if you haven't read I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual, it's a must. And now she's working on her second book, The Fear Fighter Manual. I cannot wait to read it. And I cannot wait for you all to get to know Lovey better. Enjoy. When we did share the mic now, yes. and we did our live, mm-hmm. so many people, I, I was so touched by the comments of, of people saying, it's so special to see your friendship yeah. and your intimacy yeah. and your clear affection for each other. And, and, and people wanted to know how we knew each other. And so, God, how long has it been now? Six years, maybe? Something like that. We were introduced thanks to our friends over at the Together Tour. Glennon Doyle started this incredible... No, Sophia, it was beforehand. I, you forgot where we actually met. 
Okay, it's a very much where of a champagne problem story. But where you and I met and connected before together tour was Oprah Winfrey Super Soul 100. Oh my God, of course. I, literally, no, when we've talked That's about this, it. my brain, the first time we ever spoke publicly together was together tour. You're right. Oh my God, I got to yes. go back. Look yes. at Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quarantine yeah, yeah, yeah. brain is real. No, you're right. <laughs> oh my God, of course. Because, okay, so we all get, we all get to the Super Soul 100 and everyone in the room is amazing. And actually, you know, I, we should give them some, 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 some like background on that. What Super okay. Soul 100 is. Yes. Which is, so that's why me and Sophia became obsessed with each other because, so <laughs> Super Soul 100 is a list of a hundred people who Oprah Winfrey chose as people who are elevating humanity. And it was 2016, four and a half years ago. Wow, it Four and was? a half years ago. It was four and a half years ago. It was right before my book came out because I remember I still had locks. Okay, I still had locks in my hair. Yes. And so Oprah did a special brunch just for the Super Soul 100. And this list is insane. Like this list is like Deepak Chopra, Ariana Huffington, Ava DuVernay, India Reed, Jesse Williams. Yeah. Like it's basically this crazy list that I, when I first got the notification that like they chose me to be a part of Super Soul 100, I think I deleted the email because I didn't think it was real. I thought it was spam. <laughs> I was like, I was like this, whatever, this is spam. Somebody's messing with me. It was well, when my manager called to tell me about it, I was like, oh my God, I get to do it. I get to go on Super Soul Sunday. And she was like, no, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. She's not asking you to be on the talk show. She nominated you to be one of the 100. And I was like the 100 what? I, I couldn't. It was like suddenly I couldn't speak <laughs> English. I was like, I don't understand what you're saying. Because there are so many people in the world. Why Why am I on this list? I don't get it. Correct. That yeah, was the same and, question I had. Oh, my God. And we got to that brunch. Yeah. Everyone's amazing. That's the brunch. And you and yes. me and Sarah Elizabeth Lewis from Harvard yes. sat yes. at a table together. And we were like... We were like kids with the church giggles. We were just in the corner, like nee, 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 just gabbing for like talking, two hours, giggling. I, we were supposed to mingle, and I didn't. I don't think I mingled. I think I was just talking to you and Sarah because that was when you were on Chicago Med or Chicago PD. PD, yeah. PD. And I was like, I'm from Chicago, and you were like, Yes. Wait a minute. Where do you? And that's how we really got into the giggles. Yes. And I was just like, Oh my god! And there's a picture us walking because we there was a brunch piece and there was another piece where we had to take photos with Oprah. Yes. And we had to use golf carts because we were on the own thing. So I have a oh picture God, of me doing a photo. selfie. Our golf cart photo. I have that photo. It's me, you, um, es- Esther Perel, yeah. uh, Ariana, and like two other people in the golf cart. Oh so I have that God. selfie. It's so good. Yeah. That was yeah. so fun. That was so, so fun. And wow. then, and then we got to speak together mm-hmm. for the first time in Chicago yeah. for Together Tour when Glennon yeah. put that whole, and, and we're talking about our other favorite work in progress friend and just real life friend and share to Mike friend, Glennon Love Doyle, her. beyond. And, and she invited me to come and speak at the Chicago event. And I was like, oh, of course you're here. So Which fun fact, so- that tour when um, we were picking the people who were going to be on the tour, the moment your name came up, everybody was like, yes, please. Yes. Yes. 
please make sure Sophia's on this. So you were like always high on the list as one of the people we wanted on that first together tour. Like the moment your name came up, everybody was like, absolutely, please make sure Sophia is part of this. This would be amazing. So just so you know. Oh, I love that. Thank you. It was really, it was really cool, you know, to be able to, to be in this incredible, I mean, God, we were in like a, <clears throat> like a, what do you call that? A stadium, an auditorium? I don't even it was know. A, we were in the, the historic Chicago <laughs> theater. But it's, we yeah. That, and it was like guess, a sold out thing. I guess I always think of theaters as feeling smaller. That felt like, that felt to me like going and presenting at a, at a thing like in the music world where you walk out yeah. on stage and I'm like, this is not my universe. I am not used to standing in front of this many people. I'm going to vomit or like pass out <laughs> or fall off the stage. I don't know how to do this. And it, and it was cool because I remember the feeling of walking out there and just thinking, wow, this is, this is big. The space is physically big. And yet what we got to create on that stage felt so intimate. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the yeah. conversations that we've been able to have year after year on those stages together have been so vulnerable and, and raw and real. And it's been so special for us and for, for the audiences who come. The feedback is so yeah. amazing that people need more of that honest and yeah. open communication with each other. They don't want to be afraid to say the thing that might make them look you know, quote unquote weak or scared or, or admit yeah. that maybe they don't have the answer. And it's cool to, by giving that permission to ourselves to help other people give it to themselves. Agreed. It's, it's pretty amazing. Like together was just such an incredible thing. Like I, I just remember that fall, that was fall 2017. It was really special because I was on all 10 cities. I was in all 10 cities and actually mm. I have, um, the, I have the, whatchamacallit, the plugger, not the plugger. What do you call those thingies? Um, what thing? the program, the, thing you... the program. Oh, I found the program the other day and it just brought me so much joy. And I think I took a, a, a picture and sent it to Glenn and I can't, it was in my desk somewhere. And it was so cool. Cause I'm doing a purge of my office, but I kept mm. that. I was like, this is something that I'm going to keep because it was such a special moment I remember taking the stage and sitting on top of the, sitting on the stages for two and a half hours twice a week for seven weeks basically and yeah. I always tried to take in how historic where we were was like so the Chicago theater where we did the Chicago one I was also there for a Shaka Khan concert right wow it's where it's where people come who are legends to perform in Chicago and here we are and here we were mm. on the stage. So that was extra special. My whole family was there. Mm. So it was really cool. It was really cool. I love that. Did, do you think, because for you being from Chicago and talking about how that's a, that's a theater where you'd seen people who for you were legendary. Can you imagine what your little girl self would think if you could could rewind and tell her she was going to be up there one day? Little lovey would be like, you're drunk. Stop it. That's a lie. <laughs> like, I honestly, <laughs> I'm honestly blown away because so many of my experiences, including the Super Soul 100, are so big and so 
epic that I didn't even have the nerve to dream them. Mm. Right. Like who would have, I didn't have the permission to think to myself, one day you're going to step on the stage of the Chicago theater and your name will be on the marquee. Like that Mm. just feels so big that I don't even think I had the audacity to even have the dream. So when it came true, I was like, whoa. And related to the Super Soul 100 story, the thing is, Oprah Winfrey is, you know, matron saints of anybody who wants to make a change in this world. Yes. And then she's a Chicago woman and she's a Black girl. So she, Oprah is like the beacon. Over the years, I've been in the room with Oprah no less than seven times. Like wow. where I've been in the same rooms as her, but I never introduced myself. I have, I've never gone up to Oprah to say, hey, my name is Lovey. I'm a huge fan. First time I ever was in the room with Oprah was in the fifth grade. It was right after we moved to the U.S. Somehow my fifth grade class was chosen to go to the Oprah Winfrey show because they were going to pick five of us to, to join her on stage at some point. Wow. So I was one of the 10 kids who was chosen to go to Harpo Studios. So I go to Harpo Studios. I end up sitting in the, in the green room and just watching the show. And afterwards, they gave us a little tour of like the actual studio. And I remember walking past Oprah and she was speaking to somebody. And I was like, oh my God, that's Oprah Winfrey. I didn't try to go up to introduce myself. College, I end up getting tickets to the Oprah Winfrey show. I come to Chicago with my friend. They put me in row two in the aisle. Oprah walks past me when she's coming, when the show's starting. Year after, I get tickets again to her. 20th anniversary show. (laughs) Like in the most random ways. I kept on being in Oprah's space. But the last Mm. show that I went to, she walked past me. She was like, oh, I like your jeans. And I was like, thank you. Still did not try to introduce myself. You're like, hello? (laughs) Nope. I was just like, thank you. So when Super Soul 100 happened, it was actually a manifestation of dreams that I'd keep spoken. Because outside of college, I go to the Essence Black Women in Hollywood event every year. It's their invite-only event where they honor amazing Black women who are in the industry. And every year, Oprah's there. Like, but I remember one year, it was the year that my, it was the year, probably 2015, Oprah was sitting at a table with Ava DuVernay and Shonda Rhimes at this event. So I said, I'm going to walk up and introduce myself to one of them. Who mm-hmm. will I do it? I chose Shonda. <laughs> I was like, you know what? It's not my time to meet Oprah yet. So I went up to Shonda and Shonda knew who I was because she w- reads my scandal recap. So her and I had a moment. Shonda ends, up, Shonda ends up blurring my, my book. She, her quote is on the cover of my book. But 2016, when Super Soul 100 happened and I got on the list, I literally was like, holy shit, I've actually predicted this because I found three tweets that I'd written over the years that says, one day I will meet Oprah and when I do, she will know my name. Wow. And when I finally met her, she knew my name because she chose me to be on Super Soul 100. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I just love that so much. I I used to, as a kid, because her show was always my favorite show. Yes. But as a little girl, like I didn't watch kid TV. I liked grown-up TV. I watched Jeopardy. 
and Wheel of Fortune <laughs> and Seinfeld. And my parents, I like Murphy Brown was like my favorite show. I was like, she's oh, a man. journalist and she's single and she's so cool. You know, I, I, my parents were like, our kid is weird. But the thing <laughs> I was the most obsessed with was Oprah. And I used to beg my mom, beg, if I get straight A's, will you pick me up 15 minutes early from school every day so I can be home before Oprah starts? And my mom was like, no, you're a (laughs) child. You go to school. I will pick you up at the end of the day. And so I would beg her and I'd say, please just come, please come five minutes before the ending bell. Be be the first mom in line. So I got to get get home, mom. I can't miss, I can't miss any more than the first eight minutes of Oprah. And my mom's like, what is happening? (laughs) And I would run in the house and sit down in front of the TV and I wouldn't sit on the couch. I'd sit on the floor right in front of the TV and I'd just watch her. Wow. And I, I just, I loved, I just loved her so much. And when I moved to Chicago, I moved three blocks from Harpo. She wasn't working there anymore, but it felt, I was like, I just by osmosis, I must yeah. absorb <laughs> the energy of this woman, this world changing, <laughs> truth telling person who is my idol. Um, and I, That's you know, amazing. I think about, I think about what it was like to have her to look up to as a woman. And then to hear your story and what it was like to have her to look up to as yeah. a young black girl and a young black yeah. girl from Chicago. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think about Oprah starting her show and like, there weren't women who looked like Oprah who had talk shows. At all. At that all. was not a thing. There were barely no. actors on TV who looked like Oprah. Correct. And just what a, I know what a revolution that was for me. And like, I'm having this nostalgic friend moment for you. I'm like, oh my God, little lovey must have just been so happy. <laughs> little lovey right now would be like, I can't believe your life. What? Because I also went to high school three blocks away from Harpo Studios. I went to Whitney Young yeah. High School, which is where you Michelle did. Obama went. Yeah. So I would walk past Harpo Studios mm-hmm. often just to be like, oh my God. So Oprah's in there right now. Oh man, that is really cool. And yeah. So what Oprah represents, and I think for a lot of Black girls, is Oprah gave us permission to dream because Mm. Oprah's life represented all types of dreams come true. Like Mm. this woman from Mississippi who was abandoned by her parents becomes the first Black woman billionaire. It's the true it's the rags to riches story that you think is too good to be true, but it's true in her. So she's the proof to be like, okay, so even though my dream might sound crazy, there's a tiny chance that it's possible for it to happen because it happened for her. And to, which is why that Super Soul 100 thing felt so unreal, which is Mm. why I thought somebody's tricking me. That didn't happen. Even when we showed up for the brunch and her staff was around, I literally walk up to them and I said, so let me get this straight. Oprah actually knows who I am. And they were like, yes, because Oprah literally was picking the people who was, she picked every single person on this list. Yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes. So I said, wow. Wow. She actually said yes to me. So then it culminates in the wildest thing. A year after Super Soul 100, in the middle of the Together tour, Oprah does a Sunday brunch at her house. Yes. And I got an invitation. Yep. 
And I'm sitting on Oprah's lawn surrounded by the who's who of impactful people in the world, surrounded mm-hmm. by people who I've read their books, who I've watched on TV, who, who I'm like, oh my God, you are goals. And I'm sitting in the same space as them. And I was just like, I want to like drink this in. I need to just, I wanted to take in every single site. I remember yes. sitting at a table with Angela Bassett and being like, what is my life? How am I sitting a foot mm-hmm. away from Angela Bassett? Mm-hmm. So Oprah, at, towards the end, I actually didn't really say much to her because she was always surrounded by people. So Kirby, who is Gail's daughter, was like, have you said hi to Oprah? Have you been? I was like, you know, I've been giving her time. Kirby was like, let's go over there right now. And I'm over here like, ah, I don't fangirl over anybody. I never even fangirled over her when I first met her, but I don't know what it, I was like, oh. and Kirby was like, and oh, the, you know, have you seen Lovey? She was like, of course. She was like, in fact, Lovey in, interviewed me last year because I also ended up interviewing her and she rubbed my head. Um, and I was just like, your home is beautiful. Thank you so much for having us. She was like, my pleasure. And I was just like, what is my life? I'm just internally screaming. Yeah. Internally screaming. But I have to make this point about Oprah. People think about her and think about this like larger than life woman. But one thing that I think has really been a part of her success and the reason why she keeps being win- being somebody who wins is how kind she is. Mm-hmm. And I say this because we were basically the last people at the brunch. Cause I was like, we going to stay. It was me, Bose, Carnell, my husband. We were just like, we don't have to rush out of Oprah's property. So we just going to take our time. We were having conversations with people as we we're walking out. We turned around and Oprah had gathered all the people who worked the event, the waiters, the, the servant staff, anybody who worked and she had just, we're standing in front of them and said, I just wanted to take this time to thank you for making this event what it was, for making it such mm. a success. I see your work. I appreciate you. And I loved that. And I was like, this woman yeah. is stopping to be like, I need to make sure y'all see me. Like, you know, I see you. That mm-hmm. no work was too small that contributed to her day. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I was like, I got to make sure that I never lose the person who thanks everybody, not just the big people, but the people who yeah. are doing the work that is often thankless. Yes. It's such a reminder because there's this false narrative that when you get successful, you, you turn into kind of a dick. Yeah. And Oprah yeah. is the pinnacle of success and the pinnacle of class. Yes. And I remember that day. I mean, my God, when I saw you, I was like, thank God, because it's intimidating to be there. And to your point, you know, we're at her home. It's gospel brunch. It's like this magical morning <laughs> common and Andrew Day are singing. I'm like, where mm-hmm. am I? What yep. is happening? And I'm talking to Diane Sawyer, like for a kid who went to journalism school, I was like, hello. Gagging. You were gagging. Like my two, the two women I have looked up to most, Oprah and Diane Sawyer, are just casually hanging. And I did the same thing. I avoided Oprah. I was like, nope, everybody wants to talk to her. I'm just going to keep my head down. And at one point we like kind of locked eyes and she went, hello. And I was like, hey, ah! I literally went, hey. I was like, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to leave you alone. Thank you so much for inviting me <laughs> That's here. me too. Yeah. And then I saw one of the lovely women from her team who we'd met at the first Super Soul 100 thing. And I was like, it's so nice that you guys invited the Super Soul 100. And she leaned in and she goes, not all 100 of you got invited to this. And I was like, wait, for real? What? Lovey. It wasn't just, it wasn't just the whole 100 invited. The, 
And I, in that moment, when you said like, are you on the, on our brunch day? Like, are you sure Oprah knows me? I remember that day being like, when the, when the hundred of us met, I thinking, okay, I'm sure Oprah picked a lot of these people, but I'm also sure like maybe the team picked some people. I had this thing in my head. I had this imposter syndrome thing where I was like, I don't think Oprah knows me. I don't think Oprah, you know, sure. I, 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 I've dedicated myself to being a a real activist, but there's people who like Oprah was friends with Nelson Mandela. Like, what does she care about what I'm talking about on Instagram? You know? So I was like, there's there's probably like some of the younger girls on her team who like loved one tree hill. I told myself this whole story about how everybody there had been picked by Oprah, but she probably didn't really know me. And same. And when, when her team was like, no, Oprah picked people who she believed to be doing meaningful work in the world for this. In a way, I, I had to realize the way that I will so often support the work of others, but detract from the quality of my own work in myself. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I remember thinking my, my inner little, like, Little Sophia, who used to beg to go home early so she could catch the beginning of the Oprah show, needed to know that she mattered, that she grew up to matter to her hero and needed to know that she grew up to do something of merit that warranted her inclusion in a group who she looked up to. And, and it's like, I realized that, that the, little, the little me in me that has always been a little afraid or worried that she wasn't enough has told big, big me, present day me that maybe I'm not enough. And I thought I got to go back and start to undo that story. You know, Oprah talks to us about our stories. And so I'm curious, like when we talk about our, our littles and I'm like, I love people who, who are dedicated to the work and who go to therapy because they know how to talk about their inner children. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, like, I always like to go back with people who come on the show. Who, who was little lovey? Like, what was your life at eight years old? Yeah. What, what was your experience being a little Nigerian girl growing up in Chicago? Like what, what was it for you? Man, now I keep picturing, now I keep picturing little Sophie and little love. They would have been such besties. They would have been oh like, my god. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> that <would've> been... <laughs> Just like running I'm faster than our little like... legs could carry us. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Little me was very much big me in that little me was also still audacious. She was pretty self-assured but broke a little bit of that. So we moved to the U.S. when I was nine. Little Lovey had never been the only or the new girl ever in her life until that moment, moving to Chicago Mm. at nine. I had never been in a room where everybody didn't look like me. I hadn't, besides when we came on vacation to the U.S. like a few years before. But in terms of like, you now are going to exist in this plane, hadn't had to deal with that. Because the school that I went to in Nigeria was a private school that was owned by a family friend. Mm. Like the principal, who we called the headmistress, was like my mom's bestie. So my best friend since I was two, because we started going to school when we were two, was her niece. 
we ran the place in terms of like, you know, this is what we do. We're really good students. I was a kid who I was either because I've been ranked since I was two. They rank every student in each class from young age. Mm-hmm. I usually I'm usually one or two because like even though I was friends with the headmistress, I'm also highly competitive, really bookish nerd all day. I was a kid who would come home from school, do homework before she even turns on the TV. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't even have to tell me, have you done your homework? Because I already did it. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm gonna get these A's. Um and so when we came to the U.S., it was the first time I was ever different. It was the first time my name was ever different. First time my, my voice sounded different, right? First time my accent was weird because everybody sounded like me. So, but it was, it's interesting how quick kids pick up mm. what feels different. Like nobody told me you're going to have to switch up your game. I instantly knew. So I remember the first day of school, I get walked into class. The teacher tells me, to introduce myself to the kids. And I had a two second debate with myself (laughs) where I was like, okay, you don't know any of these people. Yeah. Your name, which is Ife Olua. My family calls me Ife, which is love. Ife Olua means God's love. So I instantly was like, yeah, your name is not going to be good here. Um, Okay pick a name that they can pronounce. I literally, this was two seconds in my head. I was having whole, whole debates, whole conversations. And the name that I introduced myself as was Levette, which was a nickname that my aunt called me. Mm. So I was like, they can say that one. Okay. Yeah. My name is Levette. Of course, strong Nigerian accent. So it definitely didn't sound like this. (laughs) Like it probably sounded like, hi, my name is Levette. It probably sounded just like that. Mm. So, okay. I sat down, but I was like, and I brought jollof rice to school. Uh, these kids have sandwiches. Yeah, that's not going to be good. So at lunch, I try to sit as far away from people as possible. Because I was like, when I open my food, it's going to smell different to them. They're not going to understand. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, what are you eating? And I'm sitting up here like, I don't want to answer this question. But as kids do, I ended up being like, okay, I can adapt. I can do something different. So I started listening to how they were talking. And I was like, I could talk like that. I could do that. And that's how I actually lost my accent by just listening to my classmates speaking and being like, okay, I can talk like that. By high school, most of my accent was gone. Wow. But here's the thing that I would do before every first day of school from the time I got here to, yeah, probably end of high school. I would show up to school early for the first day of school every year because I would go to each class and tell my teacher, Hey, the name that's on the roll call, don't call me that. Scratch it out. Put this name because I got used to, and then substance teachers would show up and they'll be like, ah, this name is hard to pronounce. And I'm like, I know that's me. <laughs> so having to basically be two people, little lovey was two mm. people. At home, I'm still speaking Yoruba. I am uh, still eating pounded yam. I am <laughs> eating that goosey. And at school, I had to assimilate to make sure, because you don't want to be different at 9, at 10, at 11, 12. Nobody tells you being different is cool. So I did my best to not be that different. And, you know, got a bunch of friends. My friends were like United Calls of Benetton. Like literally my best friend in, in elementary school was Indian, Shahina. And we had like, we're basically like the island of misfit toys. So we had the Indian girl. We had me. We had one girl who was redhead and you know how kids do with redheads. So it was like all the people who were different 
we found each other and we were like, hey, and then we kicked it. <laughs> I love that. You, if we fast forward, you, you, you say in your TED talk that you choose to affect change by speaking up. Yeah. And, and you're talking about how you always wanted to collect and, and protect and give community to people who, who might've been, you know, considered outsiders. So mm-hmm. do you, do you draw a parallel between the two? Do you realize that you were always speaking up and making change as a kid or, or was that a specific lesson that happened at some point in your, your childhood or your young adult life? Yeah. I think I've always been the person who, who just couldn't help but speak up. Like I've, always usually I've usually been the smallest person in the class okay small just I'm the baby of the family I was also like just petite and still am but even then I was even smaller so I think I had a bit of a complex that was like just because I'm small don't mean you about to play me right so (laughs) even when I was little I would speak up for myself if I felt like something that was happening was not cool like I did Mm. not like to feel cheated and I could not shut up about it I just could not shut up about a moment where I felt like somebody was being unfair to me. Like that's unfair Mm -hmm. was my favorite phrase to the point where when I would get punished by my mom, I would take the punishment. Afterwards, I would either write her a note or I'll walk up to her and I'll say, I don't think that was fair. I actually think you owe me an apology. I would ask my mother to apologize to me for punishing me for something that I did. Wow. At five and this is a story that my sister even tells now that she's like, you were so annoying. You would actually walk up to her, ask this woman for an apology and somehow get away with it. She might not have apologized to me, but she also didn't fight me because I was now asking for an apology. So I think in that way, I learned very quickly that like, I am allowed to say what I feel. Mm-hmm. The person might not receive it or they might not do what I asked them to do, which was the apologize, but at least I have mm-hmm. the space to do it. So I think that kind of followed me in a real way. And I literally used to write her notes. Even after I would get in trouble, even if I wasn't asking for an apology, I would write her a note explaining my part, my part of what happened. <laughs> I would yeah. write a card and I'll like fold it up and I'll slide it to her when she's sleeping and I'll just go to bed. And so she'll wake up in the morning to a note from me explaining my part in the story. And what was misunderstood. So I, I've, I've been this girl for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I still have that. I have that thing where if I feel like something has been unfair or unjust, I can't sleep. It makes me crazy. I'll, I'll spin on it. I mean, for years. And, and that's yeah. good for an activist because you don't let go of injustice in the world. But in my personal life, when I'm just <laughs> like, I still can't believe he said that to me. He I still can't. And me. I'm like, this was five years ago. Who cares? Why did I even think that thought just now? If there's like a, a, a blip of blank space, I'm like, and you know what still just burns my butt? <laughs> I'm like, yes. What Grind is, what is that? Oh, so, oh the, we, I hold grudges real good. Well, not now. So, okay. So even from the age of five, you're like, excuse me, my opinion is. Yes. How do, <laughs> How does that, how does that carry you through growing up? Because you, you had the same thing that, that I did. And and I wonder if this is being a kid who comes from a family of immigrants, or is it like that women are cultured to be nurturers and maybe it's both, but we both 
we're like, well, obviously we're going to be doctors. And part of me is like, well, there's the thing when your parents move to America where it's like, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer or a doctor. Correct. Correct. But also there, there's this sort of, you know, sainthood of, of, of women who serve and heal. And, yeah. and so I think about the, the, that societal thing. And for me, I think it all kind of mixed up and I was like, well, I'll be a doctor. Yeah. But w- was it similar for you or, or were you just like super into science? What was the motivation? My motivation was exactly what you just said. I was not super into science. I was not, <laughs> no, no. I yeah. loved writing. I loved English. I wasn't mm. into science. I, at no point did I ever enjoy my science classes. Mm. But I was like, I'm going to be a doctor because the immigrant thing, the you going to do three things. And then also I want to help the world and yeah. have, and think, and ha- also have other people beat it into your head. You're totally smart. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be, you're going to be a doctor. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Me, yes. I will be a doctor. Meanwhile, did not do well in science in general. Like if I did well, it was because I tried and yeah, no, I didn't enjoy it. So I didn't have that moment of clarity of, girl, this is not your dream until I got that D in chemistry in, in college, my freshman year <laughs> of college. And I was like, girl, you don't even like hospitals, girl, just delete that dream is dead to the world. And that is what ended the dream. But yeah, no, I didn't want to be a doctor truly. When I think about it, it wasn't like I, I like woke up and thought, oh, I can't wait until I'm in a hospital helping people. No, I was never that person. Hmm. So how did you, how did you decide to make the switch? How do you, how do you let go of the expectation and start pursuing what you as an individual really care about? I'm stubborn. Okay. I'm, I'm stubborn. (laughs) I am very much a, I'm a Capricorn. We're the goats. We are definitely stubborn. So Mm -hmm. when I got the D in chemistry and I was like, so my major was psychology pre-med. I actually loved psychology. I fell in love with it when I was in high school. So I came in with psychology pre-med, but I dropped the pre-med for the doctor dream, but I thought I could still do psychology because I was like, I still love it. Um, I really want to go to grad school and do industrial and organizational psychology, which was really interesting to me. Actually, still kind of interesting to me. But I started blogging the same semester that I got that D. And 17 years later, here I am. But really, my blog, which started as something that I was doing because I was peer pressure into doing it, ended up taking on life of its own because once I graduated, I deleted my college blog and I started awesomelylovey.com. And it started getting more attention because people were like, oh my gosh, you're saying what I wanted to say, but I dared not to. Mm. Got awards. Got laid off my full-time job in April 2010 as a marketing coordinator. And, you know, to the stubborn thing, I should have been like, oh my God, the universe is trying to tell me you should focus on writing. No, I was like, ah, I got to get a new job. Okay, well, in the meantime, I just keep doing this blogging thing. And there basically came a moment in 2012 where I couldn't deny the fact that I was a writer because I ended Mm. up doing press coverage at the Academy Awards. I had credentials on the red carpet and backstage, which a lot of people don't get. And here I am like standing next to all these journalists from BBC and CNN. And here's Awesomely Lovey just in the same room eating Wolfgang Puck's shrimp. And I literally (laughs) was like, holy shit, like you... You've made it in a room where people who are backed up by multi-million dollar outlets are in. And you made it here because of your own personal words. The mm. thing that you were doing that you thought was this hobby. You are a writer. This is your gift. This is your purpose. You're supposed to double down on it. And it was that mm. moment that I finally stopped running from the, from the word writer. I finally owned it and stopped acting like it was just this cute hobby that I had. 
It wasn't a cute hobby. It was the thing I'd been doing for nine years. Okay. Like, yeah. So that is what, that is how the plan and how this whole thing accidentally happened. Why do you think it, because I'm sure there are people at home who are listening to this who are like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I can call myself a whatever it is that they do and that they love. Why do you think it can take so long for us to embrace our truth? Especially, you know, as you're saying it, it's like it was smacking you in the face and it still felt hard and it still felt scary. What do you, what do you think that is? I think a lot of times we're looking for permission to be that person or we're looking for an example of that person that we want to be. And then if we don't see an example, we'll be like, ah, then I can't do it. Like, I didn't see the version of the writer like me who was making a good living. Like, I know the writers like the Toni Morrison and Terry McMillan's, but all I, all I was doing, in the way I put it, was writing my thoughts about the world. What's the big deal, right? Because mm-hmm. I didn't see the sample of the writer that felt and looked like me. Mm-hmm. But truly, I was really supposed to be the example for myself. I was supposed to be the example for other people. We're constantly looking for permission because we're like, if I haven't seen it in the exact way that I do it, then it's probably Mm. not possible. So sometimes you do have to become the example you were looking for because now there's a black girl somewhere who can tell her parents, I want to be a writer. Here's the example of somebody who's doing it in the way that makes sense for them. So now I am the example that I was looking for. And I think a lot of times our work comes into that too. Um, sometimes you will be pushed into it. And oftentimes, if it's not something that comes with a manual, that comes with some type of blueprint, we are afraid of it because we're like, but what if I lose my way? Because mm-hmm. there's no map. What if I lose my way? Well, you know what? You draw the map. So somebody else who comes behind you won't lose their way because you created the map that you didn't have. Mm-hmm. So I think we just need to understand that Part of the work that we do is to give ourselves the permission to be who we want to be, even if we have no example of it yet, right? Like you can become the example. You can be the map drawer for somebody else and be able to be like, wow, like I didn't design this, but I end up on this road. And if the road is leading you to greater things that you could have ever thought of, that's a winning road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think... When we think about that idea, it's funny. I, I had that conversation with Karamo on his podcast last year about how you have to write your own permission slips. Mm-hmm. Somebody else isn't going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it can be really hard, especially in pursuit of anything that's considered a creative career, because you go, well, what is my opinion? Like you talk about when you were blogging and you were like, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. Like it isn't. It's just my thing. What does what is, what is my little writing thing matter? Mm-hmm. We, we can wonder why our voice is valuable. But yeah. for me, what I always come back to is if your voice is rooted in telling the truth and rooted in kindness and rooted in honesty, you know, it's like, I don't need any of those people like running those insane QAnon blogs. I'm like, stop writing. Like you guys oh need to gosh. stop writing. You're Stop you're gonna writing. be the you're gonna be the downfall of America here, <laughs> but when when you are actually pursuing truth, justice, the illumination of people's experiences, when 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 you're rooted in a purpose, 
I think you have to keep going. And I think the only way to do that is, is to give yourself permission. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And as long as your permission comes with a a willingness to be humble, you know, to admit, look, I don't know everything. This is a thing I'm learning or working out or working on or whatever. Then I think, you know, you can feel really proud of something. And I don't know, that's, that's always kind of how I, as a creative person, that's always how I kind of try to check it. And I think where, where we meet, you know, in, in both of our differing creative outlets is we meet in activism and, and being an activist, very similarly to being a creative requires that you give yourself permission to go all in, to learn, to, to be willing to learn something new and change your opinion, um, which seems to have forgotten as possible and, and to keep showing up. So I wonder, you know, when, because you know exactly when you gave yourself permission to be a writer, when do you think you gave yourself permission to be an activist? Ooh, man, I don't know. Ooh, that one's tough. I feel like, oh man, I feel like I've lived like eight years. I'd be forgetting half my, the things that I've done, but I realized, so I actually ran a nonprofit organization for nine years called the Red Pump Project. And it was to raise awareness about HIV and AIDS and how it affects women and girls of color. Um, and we use red shoes to grab people's attention. Mm. So I came up with that one. Again, it's almost like my life has been split into all these different pieces that run parallel to each other where I'm learning everything at the same time. Mm. And then I look back and I go, oh, okay, that's what that experience was to teach me. So I started Red Pump, all of it started in college, really. I did a, I was a counseling center paraprofessional and one semester I was told to do a self-directed project, do whatever you want that's gonna be good on this campus. So I decided to do a, um, a presentation on HIV and AIDS and how it's affecting women, how it's affecting Sub-Saharan Africa and how it's affecting the United States. Um, and I ended mm-hmm. up finding out that HIV and AIDS was still really bad. I hadn't mm-hmm. heard about any of the stats since like the magic conversations, right? So I just was like, whoa, 40 million people have died. Have we not talked about this more? So I actually did this presentation and ended up meeting somebody who had lost, she'd lost a bunch of aunts and uncles to um, AIDS-related complications to where 20 of her cousins were orphaned because of it in Malawi. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God. She was like, yes. So I was like, this is really terrible. I'm, but I couldn't, it couldn't, I couldn't shake it. So a few years later after college, I was just having a conversation with one of my friends because she just found out one of her friends was HIV positive. Who's our age? And I was like, why do we not, not talk about this anymore? So we decided to do a campaign called Rock the Red Pump, where on March 10th, which is Women and Girls HIV and AIDS Awareness Day, we were going to ask bloggers to talk about this issue on all their websites. We were like, just so people can know this is still a thing. Mm-hmm. Ended up asking 10 p- bloggers, 50 ended up doing it a week later. Wow. Li- you know what's funny? How Share the Mic now came together in eight <laughs> days. This Rock the Red Pump campaign also came together in eight days. Wow. Where in eight days, we made the logo. And on March 10th, it was 2011. On March 10th, no, 2009. 2009, my gosh. 
we had 50 blogs write about this one issue and talk about how it's affecting people, how every, at that point, it was every 35 minutes, a woman tests positive for HIV in the U.S. Imagine that. Like, what? Now it's every 47 minutes. So I guess we made some progress. But that's where really my activism started. And I ran this organization. It ended up becoming a, um, a national organization. We had ambassadors in five different cities. We worked with mm. the U.S. Department of Health. We actually ended up going to Haiti for a week-long workshop that we gave to communities in Port-au-Prince. Wow. Funded by the U.S. Department of Health. So closed the doors in 2018. Because so I was like, okay, the work doesn't, does not mean the work is done, but I was like, this part of the work that I'm doing, I have to put it to rest because there's more other work that I need to be doing. So I feel like 2009 started my activism. I love the work that you're referencing and highlighting that it, it requires ongoing attention is so important. A, a former work in progress guest, Dr. Celeste Watkins Hayes, quite literally has studied and, and, and runs conversations on these topics. And she wrote this incredible book about health outcomes around HIV and AIDS as they affect black women and what is mm. capable with, with people led activist groups that create support systems that our government and our healthcare systems are lacking. And it's amazing. So anybody who missed that episode, who, who cares about this issue, please go and listen to it. And, and we'll, we'll bring, we'll bring Celeste into our, into our little crew. Cause she's really incredible. Yeah. There are people doing so much amazing work and sometimes certain titles might feel too big for you. Mm. Right. Like there's, you know, it's like, it's like the people who me being afraid to call myself a writer. Somebody's out there afraid to call themselves a photographer. Somebody's out there afraid to call mm-hmm. themselves, you know, whatever the title is activists, mm-hmm. because sometimes titles feel bigger than you. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of times we also attach a lot of power to these titles mm. that makes it hard for us to wear. It feels like we're wearing somebody else's coat. Mm. And it's almost like, okay, you know what? If you don't want to call yourself that, all right, but are you doing the work? Right. That's really what matters. Because there are some people who will throw on a title who have not done the work, right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes it's the people who are actually doing the work who are afraid to call themselves whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not calling yourself whatever that title is, give yourself permission to do the work. Take mm-hmm. the work seriously. Because part of the way that we do imposter syndrome is that we will be doing the work and still think we're not worthy of the title, the yes. good things, the access, the opportunities, all of that. Yes. You know what? I am a firm believer that if you're like, I can't believe I made it in here. When you're in the room, do less of the questioning and do more of the, well, now that I am here, hmm. what can I make sure I do that's going to make sure I walk out better than I mm-hmm. was when I came in? Who is the person I need to say hi to? What is the conversation I need to have? So while you're in the room, don't spend the whole time in the corner just being like, ah, I can't believe I'm here. Have that momentary freak out to yourself, sure. But don't let the freak out be the thing that now allows you to walk out the room and be like, I can't believe I didn't talk to anybody. Because that is how you waste an opportunity. That's how mm. you waste what could be your blessing. That's how you miss out on who could be your helper. Oh my so, God, lovey. I just need you yeah. to sit on my shoulder at all times because I do, like I, I get... I get nervous and weird and yeah. I, I spend a lot of time in corners, but I, I love that. Cause what you're talking about is actually being proactive to get 
over. And I mean, literally like jump the hurdle, get over your fear and do something else. And I wonder why do you think fear is so powerful? How did you identify it and then start figuring out how you were going to stop letting it control you when you were feeling it? I love that you just asked me this question because that is actually what my second book is about. I just finished it two months ago. It's actually being edited right now. Pre-orders will be available soon. The reason why I wanted to write my book, which is called The Fear Fighter Manual, is because I realized how many times in my life I have let fear stop me from doing something, Mm. saying something, being Mm. something, right? Like fear oftentimes has us, it's the thing that has us questioning this title, whether it's ours to wear, right? As a coat. And I think the times when I actively remember being afraid and being like, I acknowledge it, I feel it, I know it's here. And Mm -hmm. I still made the decision to move forward are the times that amazing things happened for me. The times when I said something that felt bigger than me, the the times I did something that felt difficult. And I think it's a universal problem. We all Mm -hmm. are afraid, even those of us who are considered bold and I'm a professional troublemaker, but even we are afraid because here's what happens as our lives change, the things we fear change. We don't Mm -hmm. ever stop being afraid or fearless Mm because I consider being fearless being afraid, but then considering and doing it anyway. Yeah. That is what fearless is. Does not mean I'm without fear. It means I am not letting fear let me do less. So what mm-hmm. I want people to understand is what I want to tell little lovey from 10 years ago who was afraid to call herself a writer is that why not you? Have you not been putting in the work? Mm-hmm. Yes, you're afraid of it. Yes, you're not sure all the things that might come with writer. No, you're not sure how you're going to make exact money. Mm. But this thing that's, that's compelled you so much, this thing that you wake up thinking about, mm-hmm. be afraid of it, but still own it. Because you're not doing yourself any favor by not owning it. Mm. So it just comes with acknowledging it, that you feel the fear. Just, even if you're telling it to yourself, even if you're writing it down, yes, I am afraid. And then being like, okay, now that I've acknowledged that and got that out of the way, I just got to do it anyway. It's like jumping into cold water feet first. You can dip in a toe. It's not going to make it more comfortable when you jump in. You might as well just jump all the way in. But if you notice, your body adapts very quickly. Mm -hmm. You spend more time being afraid of the cold water than the time it actually takes for your body to be like, oh, this is not bad. So Mm. just giving fear perspective and just making sure that the fear cannot stop you. So choosing to write the Fear Fighter Manual as your second book, I'm curious about the order because your first book, which you know I love so much, I'm judging you, the Do Better Manual. Why, how how did you figure out the order of these things? Was Was it really important to get people thinking and focusing on doing better before teaching them to be less afraid to go do things? Because obviously we want people to do good things, better things. Well, I I write organically. So Mm. I'm judging the Do Better Manual was written first because that was the book that I wanted to write at that point. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't get the idea in the, con- the concept of the Fear Fighter manual until two years ago, until I was like, oh, like I started understanding that the pattern of my life is that I have continuously done really scary things. And every time I've done something that scared me shitless, something amazing has happened because of it. And then I always reflect back on, so what if I didn't do it? So I, my TED Talk, for example, is a really great example of that because I turned that down twice. It was, I did my TED Talk in the middle of the Together Tour. I did not think I was prepared. I turned TED down twice and said, no, no, I, I'm too busy. I don't have time to write a new talk. Ah, I end up doing this talk, which I wrote in an Uber on the way to the airport two weeks before TED, women, thinking they'll be like, you know what? We good. Never mind. We even sorry we asked you. And they say yes. And everything about that TED Talk, everything that led to the TED Talk was proof of doing scary things and me trying to get out of it each time, but them not giving me permission, which I'm thankful for. Because Pat Mitchell asked me first. Like One of the, one of the first speakers that was requested for TED Women was me that year, May, 2017. I said, no. I was Mm -hmm. like, well, I'm doing the Together Tour. I'm definitely not going to have time because I know TED asks people to be like focused on TED. They get you a speaking coach. They get you, they make you rehearse Mm -hmm. multiple times. They will make sure they edit your talk down to the word because they want to make sure what's on that stage is like good. And I was like, oh, I really don't have time for this because I have a 10 city tour. I have two other speaking engagements all in two months. So I said, no. A couple of months later, they came back and said, you know what? We're having a together panel at TED. Just come speak on that. And I was like, "Ah, I can't. I've already booked another speaking engagement. Same day. Two weeks before TED, I found out my other speaking engagement actually didn't have to be there to the day after. So I was like, oh, you know what? I just come on there and cheer on my Together Live sisters. Pat Mitchell hears that and she goes, oh, well, if you can come for that panel, why don't you speak? And I was like, Pat. I can't do that because I got to be out of New Orleans by 8 p.m. to get to New York. She goes, we'll just have you open up TED Women. Uh, no I was question. like, what? She was like, you will be, she was like, you will make it to your flight. We'll just have you be the opening speaker. And I tried to say no. I was like, ah, you know what? I'm going to send them a speech that I write in the Uber that they're going to think it's crap. And just be like, you're right, lovey. We can't make it. I send them the speech. I landed in whatever city I was in. And Pat was like, we love it. It's great. Well, can you just be here to, you know, rehearse the day before? Ah, I was like, oop, this is going to be the part where they say I can't make it because I'm like, champagne problem. I got to get an award in Chicago the day before TED. So I actually only can be there the day of. And they go, eh, we'll just do a virtual rehearsal for you. Oh, my God. Every single excuse that I had, they were not hearing it. And finally, one of my friends, I called her and was like, I literally want to send this email to Pat Mitchell to just be like, you know, I take this very seriously. I don't want to take this opportunity for granted. Can I just do it in the next one? So when I called my friend to be like, yes, I want to send her this email because everybody else has had a coach. Everybody else has been rehearsing their talk for the last four months. And I'm afraid I'm going to get up there and bomb. She goes, but you're not everybody. Ooh, that's a good friend. I was like, Damn, she was like, all this speaking you've been doing has been your coach. So you got this. You're just afraid. Get off my phone and go write this talk. And I got on the TED stage after scrapping my talk the day before at 2 a.m., having given the talk anywhere before, have not memorized it, 
Wow. I, I sat on, my, on the plane repeating lines to myself, got to New Orleans. I did one rehearsal on the stage with my iPad where I read my talk to them because I still didn't have it memorized. And they were like, oh my God, it's great. You're like, can I, I get was, a teleprompter? <laughs> right. I was like, oh God, I'll have this memorized. And then the talk, six o'clock happens and they call me up on stage. My mic falls off first and foremost. Oh my God. So then the guy has to come on stage and fix my mic. And then I do the talk. And Sophia, I did this talk as if I had done it 15 times already. I didn't stumble over words. The TED talk that everybody sees right now is the TED talk I gave. There were no edits. There were no, um, ah, what was I going to say? None of that. It was like an out-of-body experience. Mm. And it proved, and, and I stepped off the stage. I, I said, thank you, ran off the stage. So I was like, I got this flight to cash at 8 o'clock, and it's 6.30. And the stage manager stops me and says, I need you to see the standing ovation that you're getting and pushes me back on stage, and everybody's on their feet. And I remember just being like, whoa. And I say, thank you. And I go up the stage, run into the car that already has my luggage in it. That TED Talk changed my life. Yeah. That TED Talk, I get a note about it every single day from somebody in the world that's like, I read this talk. It changed my life. It made me do this thing that was bold. That TED Talk is the reason why I get, I still get speaking engagements requests twice a week at least because somebody saw the TED talk and said, come speak at our company. So one day I literally stopped and said, imagine if I did not do this TED talk because I was afraid of it. Imagine Mm -hmm. if I did not do this thing that transformed my career because I was afraid. Imagine if I said no and they let me say no to them because I was afraid. So how many times have we bypassed the thing that can change our lives for the greater good because we're afraid. Right. How many times have we said no to yes things because we're afraid? We operate like this as a default. But what happens when we start saying, you know what? I'm going to start recognizing it and I'm not going to let fear be the reason why I miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm not going to mm. let fear be the reason why I miss out on the love of my life. Mm. I'm not going to let fear be the reason why I don't have this conversation with my best friend. That could transform her life, right? Right. So it's knowing that every day we're making choices based on fear that are affecting our outcomes. So we cannot operate from that space. It is literally stifling and suffocating us. And we have to not do it. So book two, I was like, book two has to be about this. It has to be because I want me from 10 years ago to even have this to read. There's a girl somewhere who was just like me from 10 years ago who needs to hear this because when she wants to go ask her boss for a raise or when she wants to ask out the man she has a crush on or the girl she has a crush Mm. on, what is the thing that's going to tell her, listen, I know it's scary. Do this shit. Do not opt out of the best case scenario because you're afraid of the worst case scenario. Don't do it. Mm. And I think that that relates, but that's such a powerful lesson for us in our lives for claiming our success, for claiming who we are for claiming our dreams. And I also think it's a really important lesson for claiming community, for standing up for each other. Like, again, it comes back to this ability to advocate, to be an activist. And, and, you know, you've said time and time again, that too few people are willing to be that first domino and take the fall. 
Yeah. And it's the same kind of thing, right? Like you're letting the fear get in the way when you know there's an injustice, when you know someone deserves better treatment and, and you're so afraid to put yourself out there. Yep. But we're, we're seeing, we're in this moment right now, we've seen over and over again, especially lately, that, that when one person does speak up, when one person does decide to record this thing on video, so many yeah. other people follow. And, and, yep. and I'm curious, you know, what, what are some of the experiences that you can look at in your own life where you go, yep, that's where I was the domino. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is the time when I actually had to, when I was asked to speak at this uh, European tech conference that brings in 15 oh. million euros. Uh-huh. And this story makes me so mad. <laughs> it's so bad. It and me so they mad. literally emailed me to ask me to speak. And, you know, my manager hits them up and says, you know, here's her fee and travel and they reply back that they don't pay speakers, that the exposure that I would get on that stage is a lot. So I need to pay my own way there. And I remember asking my friends who were in the lists and being like, hey, have you ever spoken here? Did they actually make you pay? And I quickly found out that white men who were asked to speak there were paid or they'll buy their books and they'll pay their travel. White women, they paid their travel. Black women who were asked to speak were asked to speak. So isn't on that their own dime. White men got a fee and travel. White yeah. women got travel, no fee. And you yeah. as a black woman were offered no travel and no fee. So it's I was literally my the way patriarchy there. at work. It makes me so it mad. Was. It was. And the wild oh. part was I instantly was like, this is trash. And I want to speak up about it. But I know I might face financial loss because if other, you know, other uh companies are like, ah, I love you's a pr- troublemaker. We shouldn't have her. I could lose out on a lot of my business model because I, 80% of my company right now, of the revenue that we bring in is from speaking. So my agents were like, ah, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, here's the moment where I'm being asked to be who I say I am. Here's mm. the moment where I have to show and know what my own power is. Am I expecting the person who just started speaking yesterday to be the one to challenge a system like this? Am I expecting somebody Mm -hmm. who's never been paid for a speaking gig when I'm getting my fee, my five-figure fee, I'm on all types of stages that are like rarefied air. I do have some power in this, even though I am a Black woman. I can absolutely face loss, but I have to exercise the power that I have in this moment as a professional speaker who's respected. Mm. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to speak on it. So I went on Twitter and I was like, you know, I'm being asked to speak at this conference. And meanwhile, they just don't want to pay me. And all these people started talking like, oh, my gosh, me too. Something like that's happened to me. Oh, my gosh. The same conference asked me to come speak. They didn't want to pay me either. And it started a really amazing conversation about pay inequality. Now, a Forbes writer sees it and says, yeah. hey, would you like to go on record? Because I want to write a piece about this in Forbes. And I was like, all right. And they end up getting Gary Vaynerchuk to go on record too. Mm-hmm. They end up getting, so the guy who runs the conference, who was this Eastern European dude bro, read the piece, got in his feelings about it, emailed me and the Forbes writer and said like, well, maybe if this was a more urban demographic, Lovey could command her fee. It was like such racist dog whistle. It was so bad. So because of his ego. That makes my blood boil it was so 
bad. Wow. But the good part is it actually doubled down and, and proved my point. Mm-hmm. So the Forbes writer added his email to the piece. <laughs> and it like put the conference up in the light that was not good. A few people actually pulled what? out of speaking. Some people pulled out and deleted the registration. But it was in that moment that I had to be the domino because I'm just like, if I don't speak up about this, because oftentimes people expect our silence to be what protects them. Yes. What will the- Our fear my, of retribution. Our fear. Correct. Our fear of punishment, which is valid, right? But I, that's why I have to understand, like, will I be homeless if I speak up about this? If I lost all my speaking engagements, would I, would, would I be homeless? No, because let's right. say I end up going through all my savings. I have a few couches I can crash on. I'll be all right. And I don't have kids. So it's not like there's a child that's depending on my next speaking engagement to live. Mm-hmm. So I have the mm-hmm. power to make that decision and take that risk. Mm. I think oftentimes people don't want to take the risk because they're not acknowledging the power they do have. We're mm-hmm. thinking this punishment is going to come, but not thinking like, what is the power that I have that's actually going to mitigate that risk? Yes. And me as a professional speaker who had been at it for 10 years, that's the power that I had. Um, yeah. but what worked against me was me being a black woman, but what worked for me was the fact that I had great relationships. I had great access. I had great opportunities. So all of those let me know I can take this risk. If yeah. I suffer some losses, it won't end my life. Okay. So this is a, this is a really important place I want to get to because what you're talking about is realizing what you're up against and yes. also spending your privilege, the access, yes. the relationships, yes. the financial security. Yep. Those were your privileges in this moment. And you realized, as yes. you said, that you could speak up in a way that another black woman in your position with this conference, for example, wouldn't be able to. And that's Correct. the thing I really want to touch on because right now, okay, we're recording this at the end of July and, and, and over the past couple of months, this summer, we have seen the world's largest civil rights demonstration in history. We have seen a yeah. massive, long overdue, but massive calling out of racism. People are standing up for justice. We see white suburban moms in Portland taking the front yeah. line, getting assaulted by the police and pepper sprayed to defend peaceful protesters behind them. We, we are really seeing people step up. And yet, a poll just came out showing how voters are breaking down. Mm-hmm. and who they're, who they're voting for. And there is still a swath, a very large swath of white men who are like doubling down on Trump, which I'm just like, I, I don't understand how this is possible, but okay. But what really confounds me is the white women. And I, one of the things I love about our friendship and our activism is that we can show up and teach together. And I want yeah. us to have this teaching moment because. I need for the white women who are listening to this to not feel like when we talk about whiteness, you are personally being attacked. Lovey and I are having this conversation. I'm the white woman on this call. I don't feel attacked. I don't feel vulnerable. I feel amused by my friend who is hilarious. I feel very loved. I feel very safe. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to understand why I, I have a theory. I think that the the reason that white women can get very sensitive about these conversations Mm -hmm. is because of the oppression we've experienced. So let's use the conference as an example. White men were getting a fee 
and travel. You're right. Women were only getting travel. Black women weren't getting a fee or travel. And white ladies, this is what we have to pay attention to. Yes, we know what it's like to be diminished because we are women. We know how frustrating it is. By the way, Lovey, I quote you all the time. When conferences ask me to come and speak for free and I know how much money they're making, I'm like, no. Clearly, you, you inviting me means I'm already exposed. That's a brilliant already. quote from my friend Lovey Ajayi. I don't need your exposure. You Already. Yes, I'm like, you big corporate conference need to pay me a speaker's fee so I can afford to fly myself and put myself up at the Women's March on my own dime so I can show up is. for free as an activist. And there it, it is. That's my there argument. There it is. But I think this is really important because sometimes I, I think that the oppression that women who look like me have faced at the hands of the patriarchy when we begin talking about the intersectional oppression of women of color, women who look mm-hmm. like me go, but I, I've suffered and I'm sad. And then we get into white tears, mm-hmm. which are so dangerous because often white women have been cultured to like, suck it up, be tough. Don't cry in front of the boss. And the boss is usually a man. So when black women or women of color in the workplace express that white women are exercising, whether it's conscious or unconscious, whiteness over them. White women then burst into white tears in front of Black women or Latina women. And then it's those women of color who get penalized by the white guy in charge, who is who we should all be frustrated with. So I think it's really important for us to examine this. And I I really want us to be able to dive into this. I want to I want to talk about that post you wrote two years ago that went very viral about these, how weary black weaponizing women are. The the weaponizing. Oh, okay. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. So to your point, the weaponizing of white women tears. So here's the thing is white women are oppressed because of the womanhood. Yeah. And because of that, white women tend to take the damsel in distress angle into conflict resolution and over history. Tell me more about that before we even know, move on. This idea of a damsel in distress, because this also, I'm like, yeah, we were all raised on Disney movies. Hello. We've been correct. taught that it's our only way to be valuable as if we're sad and wounded. And I don't think we realize how damaging those stories are into our adulthood. So can we unpack that a little bit before we see how absolutely. it plays out? So damsel in distress, I'll even give you the best example. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Mm-hmm. Goldilocks is this little blonde girl who goes into this house owned by these three brown bears and ends up eating all their food. In the process, breaks their chair, breaks their bed, ends up napping in the bed. And really at the end of Goldilocks, she ends up running away crying because she's afraid of the, the three bears, which is wild. You come into their house, <laughs> eat their food, sit on their furniture and break their property and you end up crying at the end because you are afraid of their anger. It is the perfect capture of what the damsel in distress syndrome looks like where Mm. oftentimes you cause something and you now yell being attacked. Mm. So how Disney does it, all the princesses too, right? It's always damsel in distress of like somebody having to save this person. And historically speaking, it's also valid because even though a lot of society's ills and a lot of injustices were perpetuated by white men, they were enabled by white women. So even during slavery, 
like as white men are raping the enslaved women, white women knew about it and oftentimes will weaponize it, right? Mm -hmm. And be like, oh my gosh. And sometimes white women would get enslaved men in trouble because they'll say, he looked at me funny. Mm -hmm. He ends up getting killed or lynched because of it. We think about Emmett Till. Emmett Till. Emmett Till was like, what, 12? And he ends up getting lynched and, and brutally murdered because a white woman told people that he looked at her funny. This white woman who, by the way, is still alive and has admitted mm-hmm. that she lied. Yes. And has faced no penalties, no repercussions, mm-hmm. no consequences. This white woman, decades after the fact, can say, I lied. And this boy mm-hmm. lost his life. A family lost a son. Somebody lost a friend. Mm-hmm. Somebody lost a nephew. That is what we talk about when we talk about the weaponizing of white women's tears. Oftentimes, it's used in meetings. It's mm-hmm. used in offices. People have so many stories. Um, my last episode on my podcast, Rants of Randomness, is me talking about this. People have so many stories that they sent me of yeah. times when they've got in trouble because a white woman cried and literally mm-hmm. said, this person attacked me, had no proof to show otherwise, and people took their words as bond, and the other person gets punished. Mm-hmm. So when we talk One about the- privilege... One of the stories before we move on, sorry, but one of the stories that was so impactful for me was hearing about a a professor who had, Mm. who had this experience of a black woman professor who's, who had a white student complain about her and say, you know, she, her tone Mm -hmm. is so aggressive. She's not nice to me that this professor now will not meet with white students without a witness. Yes. Yes. Who is not a student I, without someone to back up her own account of the exchange. And yep. it is incredibly important for people who are like, that's insane. This is wild. I can't believe it. Stop saying you can't believe it because it is historic. You know, to your point, Levy, when we, again, ladies, when we think about the way the patriarchy exercises itself over us, when you talk about the era of slavery, and how there were white men who, who raped enslaved women. And, and the white women who were married to these men didn't get mad yep. that their husbands were rapists. They got yep. jealous that their husbands were attracted yep. to other women. That is yes. the patriarchy at work, pitting us against each other. They did it to us in the suffrage movement also. Rather than demand yeah. votes for all Americans... They were able to split us and they got white suffragettes to turn on black people. And it is the main tool of the oppressor class is to look at those they oppress and, and think, how can we get them to fight with each other? And see, it perpetuates ugliness. The, it does. The, the patriarchy is a big thing, but I think racism is also incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Outside of and I don't mean patriarchy. to leave that out. Um, I think to your, to your original point of how white women are still voting for Trump, a lot of them mm-hmm. are voting for Trump because their husbands are, not necessarily because they like Trump. A lot of yeah. them are literally voting for Trump because their husbands are. And what it comes down to when we talk about privilege and power is whiteness is one of the biggest pieces of power. Even beyond the patriarchy mm-hmm. at all, white mm-hmm. women are still more protected than black men, right? Yes. Like, so yes. that whiteness is the ultimate in privilege. And yes. still people can really interrogate what roles they play because we mm-hmm. often, white men are the ones that are known as the cartoon villains of the world. 
signed, sealed, delivered, admitted. But I also think white women have been able mm-hmm. to get away from culpability for such a long time because of the yes. damsel in distress, right? And so being yes. the person who throws a rock and hides her hands, that's yep. what the damsel in distress now does as a covering because people are mm-hmm. now like, oh my God, no, 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 don't hurt her feelings because she might cry. Because even white men will sometimes bend to the will of white women because of the mm-hmm. damsel in distress. And mm-hmm. a lot of us now have to operate with this in the real world, in offices, in, yes. in our everyday lives and try to maneuver to make sure we're not being too aggressive to hurt the damsel, right? right? Well, so, and yeah. this is what I need the women listening to understand. If, if yeah. you're a white woman and you can understand the, the way the patriarchy flexes, yeah. and, you're, and, and like if you're understanding it, you might be sitting at home nodding right now. I know that it can be harder when you are beginning your work as an activist, when you are beginning to um, have anti-racist work illuminated for you. If, if you're newer to that pathway, welcome. Please don't leave. It is long, but it is full of reward and the best people you'll ever meet. But I need you, if you are willing to admit what the patriarchy looks like, to then admit that the patriarchy is so intertwined with racism. It's like Mm -hmm. basket weaving. They're Mm -hmm. all enmeshed. And so for for women who look like me who are listening to Lovey and I have this conversation, if you want to unpack the patriarchy, you can't do it without unpacking racism. And you Mm -hmm. have to understand how, even if you don't believe you are racist, if you don't believe you have racist behavior, Racism is a system. It, it's like the air around us. There's no way it hasn't gotten yep. into our lungs. And we have to see that. And if we, because we can't cry in front of the men at work, cry when a woman, you know, gives us a very valid critique, mm-hmm. we are literally weaponizing whiteness against that. And it's not yep. okay. It's not yep. okay. And it, and it happens. It, it, it is such a detriment. We can't use the one sad tool that the men left us with to, you know, win them over and make them apologize to us. We can't use that against each other as women. Yep. We cannot do it. It is, it is so, it is so incredibly dangerous. And, and you, you quoted something in your, in this piece you know, you wrote this article on the weaponizing of white women tears and, and you linked, cause I, I went through and I, I was mentioning, I read all of those responses and they're heartbreaking. And we're going to link to that in stories for this episode. Mm-hmm. You quoted this woman, Shay Stewart Woolley, who moved yeah. from Chicago to Maine. Her blog is amazing. Mm-hmm. And she wrote something I'd like to read. Cause I think it, I think it clarifies a lot of this. She said to cry is human, but not all tears matter. And they particularly shouldn't matter when they come at the expense of someone else. Rarely Mm -hmm. do the tears of a non-white woman carry any value. Instead, society conditions us not to cry. And with tears not having equal value, you create this archetype, which we see referenced, y'all. You create a, quote, strong Black woman. The damsel Mm -hmm. in distress is never Black. We are expected to always be strong. And she obviously saying we is referencing black women. I know that might be confusing because I'm reading it, but (laughs) we are expected to always be strong and yet 
also expected to never show anger or disappointment, to always turn Mm -hmm. the other cheek and be the calmest person in the room. White women tears are multi-purpose. They derail conversation. Mm -hmm. They emotionally Mm -hmm. bully others, particularly people of color. And they are almost never questioned, which only adds to the power of a white woman and her tears. Yep. Yep. Yes. All of that. Yeah. All of that. And when I... When I reread your article, which I'd read before, and when I read Shay's words, and I really sit with them, it reinforces the absolute truth that there is such a serious amount of cognitive dissonance happening with white women. You know, we have this thing where we're like, oh, the girls are on the same team. And and we ignore, because we're Mm -hmm. thinking about it in terms of gender, we ignore the very real line that racial oppression and racism has drawn in the sand for black women throughout history. So if a black woman doesn't automatically view you as a white woman, as like one of the girls, understand that that's because white supremacy is very real, very toxic, very insidious. And that so many white women who would say on all their socials right now, I am not a racist, behave in very racist ways and weaponize racism. And a lot and, of women have personal stories like this. That's the thing. Even yes. beyond the history, history, you know, historic accuracy, so mm-hmm. many Black women have stories of a time mm-hmm. when a white woman has gotten them in trouble at school, at work, where yep. they've been blindsided by something that, some, you know, and been like, wow, like I find it really hard to be a part of this larger sisterhood when mm-hmm. there's so many opportunities in my life that I've seen where a white woman has weaponized her whiteness. So it is, to your point, it is the work that needs to be done. And it's really important work because none of us are free until we are all free. So Mm -hmm. as we are talking about the patriarchy, white women can't be free until racism is also handled because they're also intertwined. So even if it's on a selfish level, understanding that it is in your own best interest to be anti-racist, because mm-hmm. once, because all of these injustices are webs together. It's not like we're going to solve one and then the other ones are good. Because there's also homophobia. There's transphobia. Mm-hmm. There's also woven in a whole lot of patriarchy and racism. There's yep. ableism. So we all just outside of our own groups that we exist in have to understand that somebody else's fire is our business. Somebody else's unfair injustice, like, laid life is our business because mm-hmm. we are so comfortable being like, well, that's not me. That has nothing to do with me. But the person who gets killed because of their race mm-hmm. makes it harder for you to also exist because you can get killed because of your gender. You yes. can get killed because of your gender orientation. You can, like, it is so much that mm-hmm. we have to understand is interwoven. Mm-hmm. All of our battles are locked together. So we, all have to fight for each other. So until mm. white women really understand on, on a visceral level, we won't get a lot of progress in the way we should. And how does this, because I think there's probably people who are saying, absolutely, yes, and I'm, I'm ready for the work and I want to show up. And I think some folks who are listening are well on their way, you know, yeah. going through the resources we've all sh- been sharing for so long. And, and, and for folks who are newer to the conversation who are wondering where to start, that's where I think something like our project, like Share the Mic Now, 
mm-hmm. was so incredibly impactful because what it did is it it opened perspective and so many girls, so many girls who look like me sent me messages saying, I didn't realize how white my feeds were. And mm-hmm. thanks to this project, I met all these other women and I'm learning all these other things. And I realize, you know, I can believe in these causes, but if I don't follow people who are a part of them, if I don't follow people who are affected by this, I'm missing yeah. information. And I was like, go ladies. Like, yes. Yes. That's it. Yeah. To your point of where people start. That's why she left people with the, be the domino truth selling guide, which by the way, 4,000 of your audience downloaded. So I created a guide called be the domino, a guide to truth telling, because a lot of times people are like, okay, so how do I do this hard thing? How -hmm. do I show up in this way that makes sense? How do I make sure that I'm being the person who is in the room using her power and privilege, even when it's really difficult. So I created a guide, you go to be the domino.com, download mm-hmm. that because I think what we need to be viscerally accepting is that we have power that we can use every single day. And that power is our voice. It's to make sure we are pushing people to be better than they were because we're in the room. It's to make sure that we're saying, hey, this thing happened. It wasn't okay. It wasn't done as thoughtfully as possible. Mm. I think we should do it different. It's making sure we're using our power you know, for the moments we do have more power than somebody else in the room and saying, hmm, here's how we need to make sure that the person who doesn't have as much power as me gets a voice. So yes. yeah, download the guide and really start doubling down on being a truth teller. Start being the mm-hmm. person who is challenging things that are happening around them that are not okay. Because mm-hmm. you know that you want somebody to also speak up for you if you end up mm-hmm. becoming the victim of something, I don't want to be quiet because I know if something happened with me, I would want somebody else to speak up for me. But am I speaking yes. up for somebody or am mm-hmm. I just waiting? So yes. we have to be the people who are willing to tell the truth. So if it ever requires us to be the person who needs somebody to speak up on our behalf, we won't be like, oh, everybody's quiet. Well, if I've been talking about you and making sure I'm speaking up for you, speak up for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that so many, I mean, I love that. I, I always talk about on this podcast, we give people homework and I'm like, and I love that the people who listen to this actually do it. So I love that 4,000 yes. people downloaded Go that download, guide. be the domino guide. What, what other things did you see from Share the Mic now? I'm curious because obviously you helped to organize the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And for, I don't know if there's anybody who's listening to this who somehow missed it. My, oh my, do we have so much content for you, but so much content. Can, can you just in case somebody didn't see it, maybe, maybe people have been taking breaks from their phones during this pandemic. Um, can you, can you walk the audience through what, what we did? So share the mic now, me and Bozma St. John came up with this idea. We partnered with Glennon Doyle and Stacey Bendit because we wanted to have prominent white women who have big accounts. Um, yeah, give over their accounts for a day and allow Black women with great voices to take it over, to really get their messages amplified. Mm -hmm. So on June 10th, 54 white women, 54 Black women, it was an Instagram takeover. So the Black women took over these accounts and we told our stories. We talked about whatever issues were in our minds. We just really kind of shared who we are. We had, it was incredible. the amount of 
amazing feedback we've gotten has been mind blowing. It's it's just done a lot. But you know, one thing we really learned that has been significant why we haven't done a round two and we're still thinking through things and realizing what the deeper work needs to be mm. is that white women who are still not used to black women's voices, who are still not used to black women's stories, still mm. weaponize it even in the midst of something powerful like that. And mm. understanding that platforms don't protect black women. One of the mm-hmm. things that people don't understand is that to be a black creator and to be a black, a prominent black woman online is to face a lot of abuse. We, mm. just in terms of how people respond to our messages, there's been, there's been um, little experiments done where people have switched their um, avatars on Twitter and how different your avatar tells people how to respond to you. So mm. black women have sometimes been like, for the day, I'm going to put a white person's avatar on and the amount of abuse that they've gotten tweeting the exact same way that they typically would went all the way down. So what Share the Mic Now on Earth for us, because one of our the people in Share the Mic Now, Yaba, somebody who find, found her through the platform, actually ended up reporting her post, one of her posts to Instagram. And Instagram took her post down. Just because this white woman reported Yaba's post, it got taken down. There's a great video that wow. she did with Tarana Burke and... Abby and Glennon um, that really talks about this, but we really understood that the platforms have work to do. Everything that we talk about is systemic. Individual levels, we can absolutely do things like share the mic now, but what happens when the platform itself still has Mm -hmm. policies and algorithms that are racist? So the point Mm -hmm. that me and you talked about on our first uh, Instagram live is we also have to work on systemic changes that have to happen. We have mm-hmm. to now be like social media. Hey, Instagram, how are you figuring out what platforms to take down? What content yeah. to delete? How are you figuring out what content is dangerous? Because it seems that across the board, the people who are being silenced and censored the most are Black mm-hmm. creators. Did you hear that episode of The Daily? A couple of weeks ago, The Daily is the New York Times podcast that comes out every morning, Monday yep, through yep, I know Friday. The Daily, you know? I haven't seen that um, one. And they did one about Facebook and Instagram. And they, mm-hmm. they went in and they analyzed the data and they actually showed that despite conservatives and Trump constantly saying that Facebook and Instagram are, you know, censoring conservative content, that they have like between an 80 and a 90% advantage because, yep. because for whatever reason, the the conservative vitriol and tendency to report more liberal content, more anti-racist content is so much higher. Like we don't bother yep. reporting their shit, but they're coming after yep. us all the time. And all I, the time. All the time. And I thought that that was so interesting. And, and it, it interests me also to hear across those 54 traded platforms who had um, better experiences and who didn't, because you have to think about who's in your audience. And it was interesting for me being able to obviously stay on my account while you had it, because part of, part of what we signed up for, you know, I'm telling the audience, this is, is to monitor comments, DMS, make sure you weren't on the receiving end of messages you did not need to read. Mm-hmm. And I was 
I was so heartened. And, you know, I get a lot of hate and a lot of threat and a lot of whatever online. Because again, as as an outspoken woman, you get it. So Mm -hmm. knowing what I'm on the receiving end of sometimes, I was like, I, I know there are people in my audience who are divine, wonderful, here to learn, who are going to be so great to lovey. But if some of those people who come for me come for her with that same kind of threat and racism, I'm going to lose my shit. So I was like really mm. in the DMs all day and I was just crying. Mm. I was like, these people are so nice. You know, oh, I never saw your DMs. I didn't go on your DMs. So I was like, I hope they're not losing their shit in her DMs. No. So- oh my God. And like my mom, literally every single frame of every single story you posted was like, go lovey. We love you. We're so glad you're oh. here. I'm so glad you partnered with my daughter. And it's like me reading. Oh my just God. Like, oh, oh, God. You're such a bun. I took them and just screenshots for you. But like, no, please send them so- to me. So many people were just like, this is amazing. We're so glad you're here. I'm learning so much. I'm buying your book. It was like, it was beautiful. And and I, I say that because I hope that all the people who are listening to us talk will hear yeah. that so often there's a disparity. We'll hear that people who are yeah. nasty tend to be louder than people who are kind. And so my request is that you show up in these spaces with your kindness and let it be loud. Like help turn the energy of the internet around. Help help combat this stuff so that these platforms are held more accountable, so that they they can't police Black women and activists, but leave like racists and anti-vaxxers up. Exactly, exactly. We literally were like, yo, wow, how? And, And to your point, I think kindness is truth. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes people think kindness is me being quiet and say, hey, and just being chipper. There's nothing more kind than putting your power on the line for somebody else. There's nothing more kind in this world than yes. that selfless act. To be kind is to be selfless. And yes. people think kind is being nice, to be like, oh my God, bubbly. I don't need bubbly if you're speaking up for me. I don't need you to be like, oh my God, it's morning. I'm so excited. When you are working behind the scenes in doing thankless work that nobody would ever even know. It's not even about saying, hey, I just did this cool thing for somebody else. Mm. Being kind is showing up for people. Being kind is really caring about what happens to my fellow human being. That's the kindness that we need from people. And that's the courage that we need from people. Mm. Mm. So... We're talking about courage and kindness and trying to change the world and launching social initiatives and writing books and being an activist and being a TED speaker. It's a lot that you give of yourself Mm -hmm. and of your heart and of your knowledge. And you welcome a lot of people in, not without rules, but you welcome a lot of people into your spaces to learn from you. That is an energetic commitment. And I wonder in a world that is intense, to participate in, to be a leader in, to be a Black woman in. How do you take time for you? What does self-care look like for you? How, how have you learned yeah. to hold some space for yourself in the midst of all this? What I miss most about quarantine is getting massages. I miss that so much. I'm like, oh mm. my God, I want a two-hour massage so bad. 
Like, <laughs> so bad. I just want a two-hour massage, and I want somebody to work out all the kinks, all of that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But outside of that, really just, you know, spending time with people I love, having the Zoom game nights has been mm. big. Um, randomly video chatting them. Um, and sometimes, you know what? Playing The Sims. <laughs> I'm, that is literally, when I finished writing my book, and I was like, oh my gosh I'm actually not on any deadlines right now I end up sitting there playing the sims for six hours why because in a world where there's no tragedies mm-hmm. it's great to create a world where it's just like you know what I'm gonna control somebody else's world now for the next six hours and and just do thoughtless things and read you know read listen mm-hmm. to music mm-hmm. uh, all of that is part of my self-care routine spend just yeah I'm low maintenance mm-hmm. I love that. My very favorite thing to ask everybody who comes on the show is the show's called Work in Progress. Yeah. So if it's a personal or a professional or a self-care moment, what what feels like the work in progress in your life aside from <laughs> needing to use your bathtub? Well, it's related. Stillness. I need to prioritize stillness and time for myself. I don't do it. Mm. I schedule everything else. I don't schedule this. And it's something that I am constantly like, I really need to stop it. I need to like have a, you know how some people are like, I wake up and I journal and I meditate and I think about I want to be that person and I visualize. So I want to be that person so bad, but I'm I not yet. And I'm like, so I want to. Me too. I'm always like, ah, okay, okay. I just woke up and I'm like, okay, maybe now I can do still. It's like, ah, what's going on on Instagram? I become like, I'm not that person. I want to be that person. So that's my work in progress. I like that. Yeah. I, I actually, it's funny that you say it about scheduling because I'm the same. My day is scheduled within an inch of its life every day. And I had a conversation with my buddy, Kyle. He's a writer. And he said to me, oh, I had to take back my mornings. And he got real honest. He, he talks, he's a really sassy, funny, like recovering ad exec, super successful, mm. super smart. And he opened up on Instagram maybe like two years ago about going through a period where he was really suicidal. And people were so mm. shocked. They were like, you, what do you mean? And, and he just talked about how he really didn't feel like his life was his own. And that a big mm. step for him, he said, I reclaimed my mornings. He said, I don't take a meeting until noon. I, I won't do it. And he, and, and as, as his methodology of healing, he would schedule his mornings like they were meetings, but he would schedule meditation. He would schedule exercise. He would schedule journaling. Mm. He scheduled it because that's how his brain understood how to do it. And, and yeah. it was non-negotiable for months and months and months. And he said it changed his life. So maybe we, we need might to have to, our might, mornings. I think so, because my mornings start with a, all right, I have a meeting in the next 15 minutes. All right. And then I'll have <laughs> four meetings. And then by the time I look up, it's 1 p.m. And I'm like, I haven't even eaten anything. So yeah. I, it's, it's absolutely something I have to fix. I have to. I have to. So, yeah. Mm. Okay, That's so this is the idea. next thing we're going to work on. Like facts, you and I are always texting about like news articles and what we're going to do next, but we're going to start <laughs> texting each other accountability, self-care. And, like, let's make a morning plan. Yeah. Like I, I haven't worked out in like six weeks. I'm, meanwhile, I bought an exercise bike, not the Peloton, but I bought an exercise bike 
and I was doing jump ropes for a hot second. I haven't done anything in a month. So yeah, we got to get that, that. No, we got to get it together. We got to get it together. Yeah. We need, we need to collect ourselves. Collect ourselves. <laughs> Correct. That needs to happen where it's like team hold each other accountable. That has to happen. Yeah. Like honestly, the professional piece, that's okay. But we we're neglecting the personal. Yeah. Okay. That's a problem. Look, homework for us too. The audience has homework. homework. We have homework. Yes. It's great. Yes. We must I do love it. it. Thank you for today. Thank you for Oh my gosh. I mean, thank you for every day, but thank you for when you you bless the folks I am privileged enough to speak to when when you bless them with with what you give me as a friend. It's it's just I don't have words for it. Thank you for having me and being an amazing, amazing human. Like it's honestly, again, like I, I am full of joy in my life because I have an amazing, I have amazing people in my life and people like you who um, really just show me that like there are other fighters in the world. It's not mm-hmm. just us, right? You, we're not on islands by ourselves. And, yeah. you know, I'm always disheartened by your friendship and just to know you. And this is really cool. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, again, it's wild. Like, little lovey could not have thought about this life and the level of, like, the caliber of people I have in my life who even, it's not even about the fact that they are known or visible. It's just, like, mm. heart-strong, heart-led people who deeply care about the world and are committed to doing something about it. And, yeah, man, so I'm honored to know you. Same, my sweet sister. I just love you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Klein Brilliant Anatomy. <laughs>